Mr. Christopher Dowhauer. Chris, how are you doing today, man? Doing okay. I'm super excited for today. I mean, this is my, probably my favorite kind of shows that we're going to be doing. We're doing the team profiles. I can't wait to dive into it. Yeah, this is where we start transitioning from Dynasty to Redraft. Start preparing for the 2021 year, which is here, and it's very, very exciting. Right around the corner, we we're talking about OTAs going on right now. Mini camps will be coming up soon, and then training camp underway it was a bit of an underwhelming June 1st with all the news that we were hoping to hear, but it's still a long way to go throughout the summer. Still a lot of things up in the air. We'll talk about those things as we go through these shows. Now, the next series that we're going to be on is, like you said, the team profiles. That means we got eight episodes where we're doing four teams per episode, diving into each of the fantasy relevant players, what we are, our expectations are for these players, and also what is their ceiling floor within the confines of their teams. Because the one thing about other fantasy shows, and it's no knock on them or anything like that, but the one thing I do notice is that a lot of times what you'll get is, they'll talk about just players out of context of their team. Well, guess what? The team strategy, the team potential, has a lot to do with what that player can do and not do. And that's why we like to do it in the confines of how do they fit within the team, especially if they have a new coaching staff, what they have to share with their other targets, and based on that, what their potential can possibly be. That's how we kind of go through things a little bit differently. We feel like it gives you a better understanding of what you can expect for that particular player, what their role truly is going to be. And, you know, and Obviously, we're not talking about the superstars here. Those guys kind of speak for themselves. They're going to do what they do. But everybody else, after the first and second round, yeah, that's what we have to dive into. That's what we have to talk about today. So today, we're going to start from the last place and work our way up as far as our last place finishes from last year. So we're talking about the Jets. We're going to talk about the Lions. We're going to talk about the Jaguars. And we're going to talk about the San Francisco 49ers all in today's show. That's what's going on for you guys. All right. So let's go ahead and get today's show, kicking it off with the New York Jets. Now, in some ways, we've been talking about them quite a bit already because they have a lot of rookies. And we were talking about the rookies and coming out of that aspect of it. But now we can talk about them in the confines of what we expect for 2021 and comparing it to the rest of the team. Now, the thing that jumps out to me the most, and Chris, you and I were on this from the get-go. Not a lot of people were. Jamison Crowder was not cut June 1st. A lot of people anticipated he would. Now, our argument why we didn't think he would be is that while he is due $11 million this year and they could get out of $10 million of it by cutting him June 1st, the Jets are not a team that are strapped for cash. So why bother? Why not have a good, solid veteran wide receiver, very good slot receiver? Why not have him teach this young core of a Denzel Mims, of an Elijah Moore, why not have him be that guy when you are not strapped for cash in any capacity? That's why I thought they would keep him. 
And while he did not report to OTAs, the voluntary OTAs, he has been in contact with the team. The expectation is he's going to show up for minicamp. And again, if they were going to cut him, they would have did that June 1st because there's no reason to wait around. It's not like his name being shopped out there in the market right now either. So to speak to Jamison Crowder and, and why you think this came to fruition the way we saw it. I mean, as you kind of pointed out, the Jets aren't up against the cap hell that any other team seem to be in. Um, they have plenty of money. They're going to be rolling over a lot of their money probably to next year they're talking about. And I think when you talk about having a rookie quarterback, it's always nice to have a veteran receiver. The Jets kind of have hopefully have learned that he's as many weapons as possible for their quarterback to succeed. Um, we've seen the Jets previous years where once one receiver goes down, they really have nothing else to throw out there. So I think that what they're kind of looking at is we have depth. We have a veteran who can kind of move the chains for us. We can give, you know, Zach Wilson a safety blanket, which is, I think is extremely important. Um, and then we can allow Elijah Moore to kind of blossom and not be forced into a productive role out the, you know, out the bat. You have a lot of transition on that receiving core. You have Corey Davis, you know, coming over. You have Denzel Mims only in the second year. You have the rookie Elijah Moore. So you look for a veteran like Jamison Crowder to kind of be your guy, especially early in the season, to make your quarterback comfortable. So I think the Jets made a smart move, and I think that there's no reason they shouldn't move make this move. Um, I wouldn't be surprised as, as the season progresses that the Jets are kind of struggling. Maybe they do look to move them down the road, but there's no reason to move them now. No, I agree with that. Maybe a contender needs a wide receiver, something similar to an Emmanuel Sanders for the 49ers when they traded him, uh, when they traded for him from the Denver Broncos during their Super Bowl run. But right now, he comes in, he can be a safety blanket, like you said, for Zach Wilson. He can be a guy who can teach the younger guys like Elijah Moore and stuff like that. It's It makes too much sense if you're not in cap hell position, which they're not, to hold on to a guy. So I just kind of wanted to speak to that because that was the big thing that everyone kept pounding and I just didn't agree with the entire time. And a lot of coming out, he's not going to be cut at all. Now, let's skip back here a little bit. Talk about Because they got a new coaching staff. They got Robert Salah. They have Mike LaFleur. Uh, Jeff Ulbrich is the new defensive coordinator. He was the linebackers coach uh, the past five seasons, and then he was also an interim uh, head coach this past year. For him, for this defense, I mean, because Robert Salah is going to be calling the plays. They don't have a lot of talent. Their, deep, no. their front four is decent. They have Marcus May. They're getting Mosley back. Yeah, they, they get Mosley back. Outside of that, they don't have a lot there. Now, I expect them to be decent against teams' runs, but you're going to be able to throw all over the Jets, which goes back to the offensive side of the ball, which is what we're going to talk about for the most part. They're going to have to put up some points in order to stay in these games, without a doubt. So that goes back to Zach Wilson. Talk about Zach Wilson and his fit with what we expect to be Michael Fuller's system. I think it's a it's an perfect fit. A lot of the things that he ran at BYU are very similar in a lot of ways. They ran a, a version of the West Coast offense in BYU. So that's what we're pretty much going to see. Um, we're going to see basically a 49er Northeast um, because, as you talked about, most of the coaching staff came from the 49ers. So you're going to see a lot of that transition from the offensive scheme and defensive scheme coming with them. Uh, I think Zach Wilson is able to throw on the run when his more gifts abilities he has. He's good with the play fakes. Uh, he's good off of play action. So I think that he fits his offense in a perfect way. He throws a nice, accurate ball. And I think it's going to have a lot of pressure on him because he's going to have easy reads early on in this offense. So you're going to look for a team that's going to have, you know, kind of narrow down the field with him in, in the beginning of the season where they're going to see a lot of bootleg action, maybe half a field read, he's looking to push it up or maybe drop it down to that Jameson Crowder as a you know, security blanket. I think that you look at the guy has a lot of upside, um, a la Aaron Rodgers, and I think that you see a, kind of, a guy that kind of has a similar system around him can be, definitely succeed. 
Yeah, I think it fits in perfectly as well. You have the zone scheme system there, like you said, off of play action. It's designed to take pressure off the quarterback, ultimately speaking, especially with a guy who can be very, very mobile. Now, I have some, what's your expectations for Zach Wilson? That's what the question winds up being. Now, this is a guy who I think his mobility kind of gets lost in the shuffle because a lot of people, they want to talk about Trevor Lawrence's mobility. They want to talk about Trey Lance's mobility. They want to talk about Justin Fields' mobility. Zach Wilson ran at a... Uh, five to one rate basically last season in college. If he were to continue doing that, he has a ceiling of 100 carries this year. It was, it was 21% of his past attempts would actually go to being carries per thing. However, that works five to one. That's essentially how the ratio would work out. Yeah, so that means I mean, he, he, I was gonna, that means he sets up for that because you're in a situation with the Jets because you have to throw the ball as much as you do. There's a real chance we're talking about almost 600 pass attempts here out of this team. I have them. I'm projected for 591 myself going into the season. As of right now, things things can change or early, early preliminary projections. But I'm at like 591 right now. That puts him somewhere between 85 and 100 carries if you were to keep the same rate. Now going to the NFL, if you want to knock that down about 15 percent just to be on the safe side, you're still talking about 65 to 70 carries here. But if he hits his potential, I just want to point this out. There's three, there's four quarterbacks last year that had 100 plus carries. Josh Allen, who finished number one overall, Kyler Murray, who finished number three, Lamar Jackson, finished number 10 overall, but had, was number one during his stretch towards the end of the season, and then Cam Newton, who had the floor of QB 16 overall. My point in saying this is that Zach Wilson has a real floor. He is a guy that you can consider. More than a high-end stream, somebody that you could draft really late because he's going to go after Trevor Lawrence. He probably will go after Justin Fields, especially if you find out he's definitely going to be a starter week one. And he's going to have a floor that you're going to be able to sink your teeth into, and you're going to, he's going to be a viable redraft option. Go ahead. We'll see about the Justin Fields thing. Um, but I do agree with you 100% about Zach Wilson being a threat and having a great floor. I think that when you look at this quarterback, you, you can kind of you know picture back Mitchell Trubisky of Chicago Bears and even though I think that Zach Wilson is a hell of a lot better quarterback than he ever will be, I think that you saw the similar mobility and then it's scrambling ability, which was something that gave Trubisky a nice floor and made him actually a great asset um, early on in his career. So I think Zach Wilson is going to have a chance to kind of do, show a lot of similar things. You're not going to have a guy who's going to be you know, necessarily like Lamar Jackson out there running for 50 yards, but you're going to have a guy who can get you 40, 50 yards a game here or there by scrambling around and apply some design plays. I think that you're going to see a lot of RPO. I think you're going to see him, you know, I talked about the bootleg action. He'll be able to tuck and run on some of those plays. We kind of saw Andrew Luck do that back in the day. And as long as you kind of get a guy who can get you 40 to 60 yards rushing, it's almost a touchdown extra per, you know, per game extra, basically. So that's where you get that floor. And I, I agree with you 100%. This is a guy that you can wait to maybe not even be drafted at all. But a lot of times if you steal him in the 16th round, you have a guy that you can kind of use as during that playoff run. And the Jets have a pretty easy schedule overall. I talked about the Jets needing to put up points. And, you know, kind of teams are being matched up against. You're going to see to have an opportunity to have some big games here or there. So I think Zach Wilson's a nice guy to have on your roster. Yeah, I think he just has more value than people realize heading into his rookie season. We've seen rookie quarterbacks perform really, really well. I have it projected out right now for 65 carries, 295 yards, and four rushing touchdowns. Just his rushing line. Passing-wise, I'll just give it to you guys. I have him for just over 4,000 yards and about 24 passing touchdowns, about 15 interceptions. Now, that projects out to about the 262 fantasy points. There, I'm not going to say where that finished last year because I also want to put this caveat out there and I want to get MD Nation prepared. 
I am projecting these guys off of a 17-game season coming up. I debated this back and forth, and I was thinking about before I was gonna only get, I was only gonna project these guys off of 16 games anyway because most people out there should be taking advantage of this. Those amateur hour leagues that I've made fun of all these years should be taking advantage of the fact that you can now just leave your league the same and not play the last week of the year like you shouldn't. But I know inevitably there's going to be leagues out there who are having their championships come week 18. So I decided if I was going to project 16 games before, I would project 17 games this year. So with that, some numbers are going to be inflated. I just want to prepare everybody for that. So you're going to have to adjust your... Because if you go to... Even if you're not following MD Nation or, or you're following us and along with other people, you're going to have to keep in mind that when you see these higher numbers across the board or all these different players, and you're going to there's going to be that extra game inflation you had to take in consideration. So you're going to have to adjust your viewpoint as far as what are your benchmarks, your milestones are for really, really good production. But ultimately, Zach Wilson is going to have a floor, I believe, most games because he is going to have that rushing floor along with being in a situation where he's going to have high volume, especially in garbage time situations. Now, the other thing about Zach Wilson is what does he do for the wide receivers? They signed Corey Davis. You have Denzel Mims, who you're hoping takes the next step up. You drafted Elijah Moore. We talked about the fact that it looks like now they're keeping Jamison Crowder because otherwise you probably would have caught him already on Tuesday anyway. So they have some weapons there in place. The big thing I want to look at is Denzel Mims, his deep threat capability. Is it there with Zach Wilson? And absolutely. Look, his average depth of target is about... 10.9 yards. So that was 34th in college overall, but he has the third best deep pass completion percentage. This guy can hit the, the ball down the field. They're going to set up, talking about those play-action boots, they're going to set up play-action. They're going to set up those deep shots to take every so often with Denzel Mims. My only question for Mims really right now is, are can you stay healthy? Wasn't able to do it last year. We go back into his college years. We put on injury rate. Right now, his injury rate is about 6-1. to one. So for every about six games played, he, I, he, he misses a game, essentially. So we have him projected to miss two to three games this season as a result. But this is a guy who gets 15.5 yards per reception, not just last year, but in college as well. He carried it over in the NFL. That was pretty impressive. And that was with Sam Darnold at quarterback. If you don't know that Zach Wilson is better than Sam Darnold at completing deep balls, you're not paying attention. So I like Denzel Mims quite a bit as a flyer. I think he's somebody who might pick up. Overall, he's not going to have gaudy numbers. I have him for about 47 receptions, 721 yards, three to four touchdowns, somewhere in between there. But Denzel Mims is going to be a guy that I think could be a real DFS play and possibly a streamer, possibly a wide receiver five that you're plugging in on bye weeks. And if he takes that next step up, could be a big-time wide receiver. But the point is Zach Wilson's going to be able to get these guys the ball down the field. Yeah, um, so I'm a little more bullish when it comes to Denzel Mims than I think than you are. I not only think it's a fantastic fit with Zach Wilson, I think it's gonna be he's gonna turn into their number one receiver throughout the season. I think Denzel Mims is the kind of guy he reminds me a lot of Cortland Sutton. I expect that he's gonna have a big breakout season in a lot of ways this year. And don't forget when Devontae Parker blew up, it seemed to kind of coincide when uh, a guy named Adam Adam Gase left Miami. So similar, Adam Gase has now moved on from the Jets. And I expect that the receivers will have opportunity to actually be productive, especially the big receivers. Um, this guy can go up and go get it from all over the field. Uh, I think that's one of the things Zach Wilson did show. He's a, he has more of a willingness to push the ball down the field, and he's one to throw up the ball so he, these guys can go get it. 
um, a la like Ryan Fitzpatrick. And I think he's more accurate than Fitzpatrick, but I think he has that aggressive uh, mentality. He's able to push the ball down the field. I don't see this guy as a captain check down. I think that's why the Jets drafted him. I think they look at a guy that they see is, you know, has the ability to push down the ball down the field and will look for that big time target. I expect Denzel Mims to maybe reach around 900 yards. I think he's going to have seven, six or seven touchdowns. And like I said, I wouldn't be surprised by the end of the season if he's number one guy. A lot of people like Corey Davis and think he's the true number one. I think you kind of remember how A.J. Brown took Corey Davis as number one away from him. I think Denzel Mims is going to do something very similar. I have Corey Davis as number one receiver for the Jets for next season. He's the only receiver that I have getting just over 100 targets, 64 receptions, 821 yards of four touchdowns, mostly because I think he's going to be the guy who gets targeted like a – he's not the same player, but like a Brandon Ayuk kind of in that system where he's going to get a lot of the intermediate play action and he's going to be more of the safety blanket on the perimeter. Here's the thing about Denzel Mims. Because he was so banged up last year, because he didn't get much of an offseason, while I am also a big fan of the player, of the talent, there was no development in his wide receiver tree. I think that's why he's not A.J. Brown. He doesn't come in and take away those targets because he is right now has to be considered more of a deep field threat than a guy who's actually going to be featured, I believe, in this offense. And I believe by the end of the season, if Elijah Moore comes in, he would possibly even move Denzel Mims out as far as targets go, but keeping Denzel Mims in his down-the-field threat role. So I don't think there's any possibility Denzel Mims is number one targeted receiver this year. We'll see. I, I wouldn't say number one targeted receiver. That part I won't argue. I do think that the okay. slot receiver will be a number one targeted. I do think I agree with Elijah Moore once he becomes a fixator, fixated in that lineup. I think he'll be kind of the, the, the security blanket and he'll see more volume. But overall, yards, production, and touchdowns, I do think Denzel Mims is number one receiver for the Jets this year. And I'm pretty bullish about that, where I think that Denzel Mims is somebody that a lot of leagues seem not even drafting. I would definitely take a flyer on this guy, and I'm very, very excited about him. Like I said, I look at him a lot like Cortland Sutton. I heard a lot of doubts about Cortland Sutton's ability, and I feel like that's a, Denzel Mims in a very similar treat, a similar um, opportunity. Our Cortland Sutton couldn't run patterns. He came from the college that you know did to run a shoot offense, blah, 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 blah. I think Mims has all the skills that you're looking for. And in the West Coast offense, I don't think he's just a deep threat. I think we saw people like Julio Jones and traditionally the old, you know, more West Coast receivers like Devontae Adams. Those kind of guys are actually featured a lot. Um, I think Corey Davis is going to be a chain mover, but I wouldn't be surprised if he becomes more of a possession type of guy than actually the guy that they look for to feature. When I look at this team, I don't have anybody in particular getting a lot of touchdowns. Uh, Corey Davis, I have the most at four. Everybody else, I have it three, two. But I have them all kind of eating into each other because the one thing I take in consideration is that Jameson Crowder and then what eventually might become Elijah Moore somewhere down the year, these are slot receivers who are probably actually going to be involved in the red zone to some degree. I only have Zach Wilson throwing 24 passing touchdowns to begin with. So I don't have anybody getting seven to eight touchdowns. The reason for that would be, or I, here, here's what I would say for that. It's not that I don't think that none of these guys have the capacity to go with seven or eight touchdowns, but I think this is something that's going to have to shake itself out. I don't think there's a Jets wide receiver that I would want to necessarily draft in the first 16 rounds. This is a situation where I would like to let it play out, and then possibly one of these guys will have value. Right now, I'm leaning towards it being Corey Davis having the most value, but it was somebody that I would be picking up off the waiver wire because I think things are going to get spread out enough to where you're not really going to be able to key on any one particular guy. I mean, you go back to San Francisco, 
the reason you can hop on a Brian I, you, you can hop on a Debo Samuel because that's it. I mean, there wasn't anybody else. You actually have four legitimate wide receivers here who are going to get sprinkled in. And let's talk about the slot receivers. Talk about Jameson Crowder and talk about Elijah Moore. Now, for the people out there who have Elijah Moore in their dynasty leagues or are excited about Elijah Moore in 2021, I know you're probably looking at this like, well, you're disappointed that Crowder didn't get cut. But let's keep in mind, Crowder has a four to one injury ratio. He's ex- I, we, I have to expect him to miss four games. He misses a handful of games pretty much every single year now at this point in his career. I probably should take before we get I probably should take this time to actually talk about our injury rate ratio because that is something new for the MD nation and what we're doing this year. Basically, I'm I'm taking your most recent history. I'm not going back any further than three years. Averaging that out with your age, with your touches, compiling all of that, and putting it into a ratio. Now, I'm not putting too much emphasis on this. It's just like any other statistic, any other algorithm. It's a tool. It's a variable of which to consider, not of which to base your entire analysis off of. So you're going to hear me talk about it because it's new, and we're kind of implementing it to try to get even more accurate for you guys uh, on, on everybody and kind of figuring out you know who can we expect. But it's more there to be for baking in an injury risk value more accurately when looking to draft these guys and just having it baked into their value, baked into their rankings. So that way, if it comes down to a tiebreaker, maybe you want to take the guy who actually will be on the field more often than not or expected to be on the field more often than not. But that's what we're doing now with the new injury rate ratio that we're, we're implementing when I talk about these rankings, when I talk about these players and what I expect out of it. It's just trying to bake it into their overall value to be more accurate for you guys. So I just want to put that out because that is something that's going to be new. You're going to hear me talk about quite a bit uh, throughout the summer. But again, it's just another tool, another variable. Don't use it to overinflate or deflate any one particular player. No, you cannot accurately project injury. Now, because it's 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 too unpredictable. It's too versatile. But you have to have an idea. You have to have their risk baked in, especially when it applies. So I just want to take the time out to talk about that. But Crowder is one of those guys that you know he's going to miss a handful of games, which is why I believe Elijah Moore, even with Crowder there, is going to get his opportunity. He's going to get his chance. And I actually have him for going for 45 receptions, 572 yards, three touchdowns. And I do believe that's being on the safe side of things with about 71 targets. So that's with him playing a full 17-game season and getting his opportunities with James Crowder probably missing a few games. The key will be for his potential, his ceiling, is that once Crowder misses a couple of games and he does step into that slot role, I think there will be a real question, does Crowder get the job back? Or do they just keep it with Elijah Moore? So that's going to be where's his ceiling at, depending upon that situation and how it plays out. How do you see this thing playing out? I think you make a great point. I think I just want to talk a little bit more about the injury rate. Also, where it can really help you is not just beginning of the season, but throughout the season. Right. This is where you can kind of watch an Elijah Moore, where, what guys you want to have on your watch list. Because as you pointed out, Crowder has an injury rate, but the Jets receivers in general have an injury rate. You talked about Mims already. You know, Corey Davis has been banged up in the past. So this guy has an opportunity to get on the field in numerous different ways, and that's what you kind of are looking for. A lot of times when you're on the waiver wire, you want to jump ahead before everybody else realizes the guy who the key guy is. You want to kind of be ahead of the curve. That's how you kind of win championships a lot of the times, and you get the guy before everybody else is bidding on him or trying to get him. Um, I think you know Elijah Moore is a guy who can play inside and outside. Not preferably he plays in the inside, but he has an opportunity to get on the field in numerous different ways, as you kind of point out. So it's a guy that you want to have on your watch list and be prepared to like, hey, you know, if I see a little injury here where I hear a guy has a hamstring issue, I might jump on this guy immediately because I can see how it kind of like blossoms throughout the season. 
So I think your injury ratio thing is an incredible tool to come up with and use. Um, but as, as I kind of see unfold for Jameson Crowder, I think Jameson Crowder is going to be productive. Um, I think that PPR-wise, I'd like him a lot more than Standard League. I think that initially he'll have some – he'll be peppered with targets in a lot of ways because he'll be the kind of the chain mover. He'll be the veteran guy. He'll have somebody kind of lean on. Um, but I, I think overall, I think that by the, as the season progresses, whether or not he gets traded or not, I think he'll be kind of phased out of the offense more and more. Um, I think it kind of – you know, you look at the Jets. They're kind of building towards the future. There's no reason to really use Crowder too much as the season progresses. So this is a guy that maybe you don't necessarily draft, but maybe you have you know, DFS or streamer early on, you look for him. And then kind of maybe if you can get him hot for a couple of games, you try to trade him or move on. Because like I said, I don't think this guy's going to be the starter throughout the season for the Jets. Yeah, I think Elijah Moore is somebody who could be valuable at the end stretch in your playoff stretch, possibly as a wide receiver four type, depending upon what happens in that situation. But overall, I'm not looking to draft the Jets wide receiver. I think Corey Davis has a chance to be a wide receiver four, wide receiver five throughout most of the year. But this is one of the situations where I'd rather let it play out. And as of right now, I don't think you have to draft a Jets wide receiver either. That's not something I would target. Uh, But I will talk about outside of Zach Wilson possibly having value to to target. The other position is going to be running back. And it's going to be Michael Carter. That's going to be the guy who I think you are going to draft off the Jets. And have a lot of value to do so. We've already got, you know, we're talking about OTAs. He was splitting first team reps with Tevin Coleman and Ty Johnson. A lot of the beat writers are already talking about it's just a matter of time before he is the bona fide starter. We figured that was going to be the case. Tevin Coleman, you know, at this point, I think he's just a guy who's a veteran who knows the system and we know he he can't stay healthy. And we know that at this point, he's not nearly as explosive as he used to be younger on. Ty Johnson's just a guy. So we knew going into this, and we've been big on Michael Carter in 2021 in general. I think the question is going to be, where do we actually value him? Where do we actually want to draft him? We'll know that more as we get closer to the season. Again, these preliminary projections will get updated. ADPs will get more accurate because people are just starting to draft now on mock drafts. So we'll get better idea as we get closer on where people are taking him and what his value really should be in uh, relevance to that. But this guy right now, and I have him on a safe side projection. 190 carries, 732 rushing yards, five rushing touchdowns, 42 receptions, 317 receiving yards, two receiving touchdowns. Comes out to about 166 fantasy points. Comes out to about 11 to 12 carries a game. That could be about 12 to 15. But I do think you're going to see Tevin Coleman sprinkled in when he's healthy. Maybe Ty Johnson to some degree. Because I think you have to, as of now, until we see something different, think that Michael LaFleur is going to follow in his mentor's footsteps to some degree and sprinkle in different running backs here and there. But just off of that, we're talking about a guy who would finish squarely in the top 24 running backs as a solid RB2 on the safe side of only expecting to get about 11, 12 carries a game. And I think that's being safe when it comes to Michael Carter. Chris, I know you're big on him. What are your expectations for him this year? Yeah, I mean, I think those numbers project pretty well. I don't know if he gets necessarily the opportunity right off the beginning of the season to become the man, but I think it's going to, as the beat writers are kind of talking about, it's going to be clearly obvious who the best running back in the backfield of the Jets is going to be really soon. Um, I think that you might see some guys get rotated in there, especially in short yard situations where maybe they let, you know, a Pete Ryan or some other guys kind of get banged, take the banging and kind of be in between the tackles kind of plays. Maybe in goal line, he gets, he gets vultured here or there. But overall, I think when you look at the Jets' offense, what they have in place, 
they're going to be a team looking to have some explosion. Um, you know, we had a lot of hype about Matt Breed a couple of years ago in the 49ers. A big part of that hype came mostly because of his speed and his ability to kind of make the big plays. Um, we see Ryan Mostert, you know, excelling with his speed and being able to make the big plays. Michael Carter was the average the most yards per carry of any running back coming into this draft. People seem to knock him because of his size. He doesn't run small. He doesn't run like he's afraid. This guy is going to be a beast, in my opinion, and I think that he can catch the ball. I think he can run the ball, and I think in the system is a perfect fit. You put him behind a, a Tucker and a Becton, you can't see this guy coming out, popping out, and he's going to be able to have, you know, seven, eight-yard gash plays here or there. I expect him to have a really productive season. I wouldn't be shocked if he gets closer to around 900 yards, like similar to his Mims, like I said, the 900 yards, about seven or eight touchdowns. I think he's going to have uh, – I think the 44 to 50 catches is a pretty good number. I think he's going to be highly utilized in the passing game a lot, a lot. But I do think he'll be more than one of the effective guys. Uh, we kind of saw Devontae Freeman have, you know, a split with Tevin Coleman back in the day in Atlanta and still be productive. I think you're going to see some of that similar split. But as you talked about injury rate, Tevin Coleman is one of those guys who definitely misses a lot of games. It's four to one. Looked, just just so you know. So there you go. Four to one, yeah. Um, so I think this guy, when you look at this guy, you know he's not going to be the guy who's going to be the, the long-term bell cow starter. And I think as soon as Carter gets that kind of job, you're going to see him thrive with it. I think he becomes Zach Wilson's best friend in a lot of ways. I expect him to as some guy I'm definitely going to be targeting in my draft. And I think it's some guy you have to look at. When you get your pack, you know, top three, four running backs in your roster, I like to take shots on guys, especially for playoff time. And this is a guy where my fourth, fifth running back is, my, you know, Carter. I want to make sure I have him on my team for that big run. Well, and he's the type of guy you might not have to wait all the way to the end of the season to get going too. To your point, let's say Tevin Coleman does start off just because he's the veteran guy who has the experience in that offensive system. That four to one injury rate, the fact that we know he's going to miss at least four games this year, may possibly even more because he's Tevin Coleman. Michael Carter will get his opportunity sooner rather than later. I still truly believe, I do believe Michael Carter is going to be the starter week one. I really do because I think it's going to be so abundantly apparent throughout training camp who the best running back in that system for that team is going to be. And the Jets are not in a position where they can hold back any punches. Again, their defense is not going to be good. Even though Robert Salah is there, it might be an improved defense, fundamentally speaking, and maybe better against the run, but they still don't have a lot of talent. Teams are still going to be able to throw the ball on this team. They're still going to be able to put up a lot of points. They're going to have to put up points in order to stay in games, especially. So I don't expect them to hold back when it comes to that because I think there's such a gap in talent between Michael Carter and the rest of them. But even if it doesn't want to be the case, it'll be sooner rather than later when he gets his shot, gets his opportunity. He's my number two rookie running back behind Najee Harris as far as 2021 goes with the output and the production. Again, I have him for about 1,000 total yards and seven touchdowns when it comes down to it. And I feel like I'm being on the safe side of that. I think there's more potential. Let's move on to our next team. We got the Detroit Lions coming up that we got to talk about here. And this is another team where it's very, very uh, few as far as who you're actually going to target in drafts. But there are some different aspects to talk about here when it comes to fantasy production, some shots to possibly take. The obvious ones being uh, DeAndre Swift, Jamal Williams, what, you know, what wide receiver emerges, but TJ Hawkinson being the other guy as well. But let's talk about the wide receivers real quick and figure out, is there potential for any value there? Here's, here's the one thing that the wide receivers have going against them. You have Brashad Perryman. You have Tyrell Williams. They're the same guy. They're down the field threats, big play makers. But Jared Goff doesn't throw the ball deep. I mean, is that not the number one reason why Sean McVay 
wanted to move on and rather have Matthew Stafford because they could not get the offense to go vertical for nothing. That's the one thing that's going to be very, very tricky. I mean, Derek Goff, he was 19th in deep ball attempts, 32nd in air yards, 34th. There's only 32 starting quarterbacks, 34th in deep ball completion. That's how bad he was throwing the ball down the field. So it leaves me a little hesitant that while you have a Tyra Williams and Brashad Perryman who are in situations to get more volume than they typically would, and maybe one of them emerges as the number one receiver, you also have a situation on your hands where you don't have a quarterback who throws the ball down the field anyway. So again, you're not drafting a Brashad Perryman. You're not drafting a Tyra Williams. You can keep your eye on one of them in the waiver wire because if one of them emerges as the primary deep ball threat, you could have a boomer bust option on your hands, maybe DFS wise. But that's how bad Jared Goff was, Chris, when it comes to the deep ball, when it comes to the potential for this offense to go vertical. Yeah, but I also think that you got to look in just defense of Jared Goff to a degree. Let's be real that the offense was also built to protect that offensive line, which was pathetic and can't pass protect to save anybody. I think that he definitely showed more verticality down earlier in his career. Um, we saw him be able to hit that 15-yard crossing pattern, those deep posts. That was something definitely a staple of his ability and skill set that they, the Rams used to utilize a lot more. They kind of became shorter and shorter passing game over the last two years. I think a lot of it's, like I said, to protect their, the fact that they didn't really have an effective running game and they really needed to protect their quarterback a lot of ways. I think Jared Goff is not going to get twisted where I think he's going to come out there and do bombing away. But I also think that you look at an Anthony Lynn offense, he tends to scheme up a play, big play opportunity here and there. I think Justin Herbert benefited a lot from that, where you saw quite a few receivers, particularly the guys, no-name guys, who had some speed get the big plays down the field because he's actually you know, play, push it down the field. You're going to see a lot of play action. You're going to see a lot of running game. But I think you're going to see a lot of vertical throws. I think Jared Goff's going to be asked not to do a whole lot. I don't think he's going to be asked to throw a lot of you know, 30, 40, 50 times a game. But he's got a much better offensive line, I think, in place in front of him. And I think that it's going to help him have an Ahakistein. And I think it's going to help him have some of these bigger receivers where he doesn't have to be as fine. Um, I do think this guy is going to have opportunity and the receivers in general, they're going to have some, a lot of DFS value is how I kind of look at it. Guys who I would definitely take streamers on depending on matchups. Now, whether they're draftable or not, I think it's highly debatable. I think that you can have these values, these guys, you can definitely see that there's so many different receivers opportunities. I mean, you want to get more upside at, but it's Terrell Williams. When he's healthy, has been effective and has been productive. And he has played with Anthony Lynn's offense before. And let's not get it twisted. Phillip Rivers had no freaking arm at all by the time he left at San Diego or L.A. And he was still able to get the ball down. It was San Diego then. You're good. So, yeah. So he was able to get the ball down to those guys enough to make them effective. Um, And I think that when you look at uh, Perryman, I mean, we we, we talk about guys who aren't aggressive. We see him, Sam Darnold, have a decent decent season with Sam Darnold as his quarterback. So I think for Perryman, his key is health. I think Williams is also key is health. So that's kind of how the receivers, why I'm not necessarily going to draft them. But if they come out healthy, this team's defense is going to be pathetic, similar to the Jets like we talked about. They're going to need to throw the ball at some point. They're going to want to be physical. They're going to want to run the ball. But I think you're going to have to see that they're going to have to have a lot of garbage points and opportunity. I think that's where you can see some of these receivers have some true value. Um, I'm not going to target any of the guys in the draft, like I said. I think St. Brown's a guy that maybe you take a flyer on if you really want to have somebody from the team. But I think this is more kind of wait and see and see who kind of materializes. What you just said about the defense is the key point as to why we're even spending this much time talking about Tyra Williams and Brashad Perryman because there's a set here where whether it's garbage time or whatever the case may be, again, the Lions will have to score points at the end of the game. Somebody could emerge. Uh, my bet would be it's Tyrell over Brashad Perryman, but again, 
nothing to worry about for your drafts, I would say. Just something to keep an eye on throughout the season and see how these things kind of unfold. But there is a receiver on the Lions I do think is worth keeping in the back of your mind at the end of your drafts. And that's St. Brown. Because let's talk about a receiver who does fit the mold of what Jared Goff likes to do. And that's target the slot receiver over and over and over again. And while it was Cooper Cup, who's a bigger bodied slot receiver, Jared Goff has shown he's not afraid to get his slot receiver involved in the red zone, which is always usually the Achilles heel. So St. Brown is in a situation to be pretty sneaky. And I have him being the number one targeted receiver by season's end. Not by much, but by season's end, I have him getting the most targets at 70 for the wide receiver spot. Still nothing impressive. 600 yards, three touchdowns. Maybe that goes up to five or six if he really gets targeted quite a bit in the red zone. But I do think he's going to start right away. I do think he's going to be the safety blanket for Jared Goff. And we know Jared Goff doesn't like to come off of his safety blankets. So I think there's a scenario in which St. Brown could have some sneaky potential value Again, ultimately, I'm not targeting, just like I'm not targeting a Jets wide receiver, and they all have much more potential than any Lions receiver does. I'm not targeting a Lions receiver either, but he's the one guy who I think has some sneaky value and could emerge as a real wide receiver for by season's end. I know that doesn't sound exciting, but that's pretty much the ceiling you're talking about when it comes to Detroit Lions, if you want to speak to St. Brown real quickly. Yeah, I think that in PPR leagues particularly, he might be worth a flyer at the end of the draft. Um, just because I do think he's going to see a high volume of amount of throws. And it's not just about Jared Goff like in his slot receivers. It's about Anthony Lynn featuring his receivers too, his slot receivers. We saw Keenan Allen play, pretty much fill that role where he gets filled with targets, not underneath stuff. I think you're going to see St. Brown be asked along a lot of similar patterns and kind of be the guy they look for for the, you know, on third and fives and third and sevens, a guy they kind of try to feature in a lot of ways. I would question whether or not he's going to be productive in the red zone. We've seen Keenan Allen also struggles not scoring touchdown wise, but Throughout the rest of the offense, you do see this guy is pretty much their guy that they look for to feature and definitely is targeted a lot each game. I mean, look, when it when it when it comes to these guys, again, it, it's 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 little little value, possibly guys you might want to talk about in during the season. But here's something to keep in mind. When it comes to wide receivers, wide receivers can surprise you when they're on bad teams and on bad offenses. There still can be value for them. It's not like the running back position. We talk about this all the time. When you have a running back on a bad offense on a bad team, it really can kill their, their potential. It really can kill their ceiling. But for the wide receivers, it works a little bit differently because all of a sudden you get surprising volume and garbage time situations. And that's why we kind of keep our eyes on these things. But let's talk about the real number yeah. one pass catcher. Go ahead. I was going to say real quick, this is why I like to do these shows that we do. And you kind of talked about at the beginning of the show. We like to talk about the scheme and the fit for these guys so a lot of players, people just kind of focus on certain things or numbers or Jared Goff can't do this, Jared Goff can't do that. But we're showing you why this guy's going to be featured, not just because he's going to be out there in the field and get snaps. We're showing you because how he fits in the offense, he's going to be a guy highly, more than likely be featured in a lot of different ways, whether it's a personnel-wise with the quarterback, whether it's the, you know scheme-wise with the offensive coordinator. So, yeah, you're going to talk about Hockenstein. Go ahead. Yeah, well, yeah, the number one, the actual number one pass catcher, who you do need to have on your fantasy radars. You do need to draft high. You do need to draft him ahead of Kyle Pitts, by the way. I will put that out there now because right now Kyle Pitts is going head and shoulders above TJ Hawkinson. It makes absolutely no sense. Hawkinson is in line for pretty much a floor of plus 100 targets this season. Jared Goff has a history of getting the ball to the tight ends. Anthony Lynn has a history of scheming the ball to his tight ends. Even before Hunter Henry, you guys remember the guy named Charles Clay 
Charles Clay was a top 10 fantasy tight end because of that system, because of that scheme, because of Anthony Lynn. If you take the two Rams tight ends and you meld them in the one, you're talking about 103 targets, 71 receptions, 863 yards, and seven touchdowns. And that's in a down season last year for Tyler Higby and a Gerald Everett and a Rams offense in general for Jared Goff. That's a, that's a great tight end in today's age. That's a great tight end. And TJ Hawkinson isn't going to be splitting production with another tight end on that roster. So that would all go to him. But then you had in the fact that Hawkinson, he's better than Higby. He's better than Gerald Everett. I have him projected for 114 targets, 88 receptions, 881 yards, and about six to seven touchdowns. And I think I'm being cautious. And the only reason I'm being cautious is because, again, there is going to be some question on how many points in general that offense is going to score. So I'm being a little bit cautious when I project some of these guys out. You're going to see it when I project DeAndre Swift and Jamal Williams out. I'm going to be a little bit cautious because bad offenses do have a ceiling cap on them. But at his floor, we're projecting him closer to his floor than his ceiling. And that is what we're talking about. Those are the numbers we're talking about. And those are, I feel very, very confident about those numbers. Talk about a guy who has top five potential at the position and he's going to be number one target. He could be this team's Mark Andrews. So he's going to have a floor every single week. That alone gives you a tight end that gives you an advantage almost over everybody who doesn't have Travis Kelsey, essentially, or, or Darren Waller. I mean, that's what we're talking about here when we're talking about TJ Hawkinson. The system, the quarterback, the lack of other weapons, everything goes into his favor this season. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the one thing that goes into his favor is he can block. And you see a lot of times these tight ends are just pass catchers get taken out of the field and don't get as many plays opportunity. I think when you're actually a good blocking tight end and you can catch the ball, you get a lot more sneaky red zone touchdowns. We saw Gronk you know, be able to fake that block and then go get, go get open. You think Hawkinson's going to be able to have a lot of opportunity to kind of do that. Hunter Henry was very similar in that way. So we saw Hunter Henry had double the touchdowns you know, when he's healthy. So I think Hawkinson can definitely be going to be the featured guy. I think he's a perfect fit for the offense. He's going to look be a very physical team. And this is the guy that they're going to be able to use in a lot of different ways when they try to get physical and take shots down the field. It won't slowly be with the receivers. Sometimes it won't be with their tight ends. And this guy can get separation. He can do the blocking. He's going to be out there a lot of the plays. So I love the fit for him, and I love his opportunity. And I think you're right. You're hitting the nail right in the head with, you know, top five. I think this guy is is incredible sleeper at tight end. And if you have a tight end, you have to try to start a tight end in your league, this is a guy you should be definitely thinking about and targeting, especially where his ADP is right now. Um, I think that you just – you talked about – Pitts, we always kind of seem to forget how long it takes a, a rookie tight end to kind of transition. Right. Even Darren Waller is a guy who kind of gets pulled out of the field sometimes because they want to go with a physical with Trump, you know, a sample or different blocking guys. Hawkinson's going to be out there all the time. And I think he's going to have a chance to kind of fall into touchdowns. In case downs. you guys are wondering who Hawkinson is, apparently he's Hawkinson's Frankenstein monster. Hawkinson. <laughs> yes. He said it like three times. It's so hilarious. Hawkinson. You're, <laughs> you know what? We'll, we'll, we'll call it, that's his evolution. He turns into Hawkinson, yes. turns into Frankenstein, like Frankenstein. turns into the monster yes. version of Hawkinson. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no. Good call. Good call. Um, <laughs> but I think, like I said, I do think he's a guy that finishes in the top five. I wouldn't be surprised if he finishes in the top three. Yeah, he's got that real potential to do so. I mean, he really does. Top three is not, is not out of the picture. Because everybody's going to say, well, what about George Kittle? We got to see George Kittle stay healthy. We're going to get to that later on the show today or talk about that aspect as well. But Hawkinson is a guy who's going to be the number one target on this team. And he's got a real chance to take that jump up. By the way, he's 
a great example when it comes to Kyle Pitts of making sure you don't overvalue him, do you don't overdraft him. Hawkinson was a top 10 pick. He was a top first round pick. And look how long it's taken him for him to break out. He's had some, he had a nice rookie season. He had a nice sophomore season, but this is the year we actually expect him to bust out. It takes a while for these tight ends to get going at the rate that you would necessarily want them to. But this is the year for Hawkinson. Everything goes into his favor. Let's talk about the running backs. DeAndre Swift, Jamal Williams. The biggest question, and we'll address this first on everybody's mind, is what exactly do we expect the split to be? Now, I'll address this. I think it was just honestly uh, yesterday on Thursday that Andy Lynn came out and said it's going to be a, well, I'm going to go with a hot hand approach. If you're coming out the gate hot, I'm going to stick with you. It's coach speak, okay? I know if you're a DeAndre Swift truther owner, it's not exactly what you want to hear. But at the same time, remember, we're in June. Everybody loves everybody. Everybody's going to get utilized in 50 different positions. Everyone's going to be featured in this way or that way. DeAndre Swift, hands down, is the best running back on this team. By the way, that remains true even if the Lions do decide to sign Todd Gurley. And I'll just talk about that, too. We didn't, we're not going to talk too much about Todd Gurley. He's not on the team as of recording the show. But if he were to sign, then we're going to have to talk about red zone production because I do think Todd Gurley would instantly become a goal line back. So we'll have to get into that if that winds up being a factor. But even if it does, DeAndre Swift is going to get the majority of the carries. He's going to get the majority of the receptions. And let's tackle this from a standpoint as of right now. As of right now, we're just talking about DeAndre Swift and Jamal Williams. Jamar Jefferson, who they took drafted late, I don't expect to be much of a factor. Talking about two running backs here. I have him in a basically a 60-40 split across the board. So yeah, Jamal Williams is going to get some touches. Yeah, he's going to be involved. For every two series Swift plays, Jamal Williams will probably play one. Most likely. But here's something that's going in the favor of Swift. Again, this goes to if they don't sign Todd Gurley. But for being a smaller type of back, he was very efficient in the red zone. So I don't think you're going to see Jamal Williams the automatic goal line back as a result of that. So that maintains a 60-40 split in every category, including touchdowns. That protracts well for a guy who's as explosive as he is. Talking about Anthony Lynn, who makes every running back excellent. Dan Campbell, who's coming from a system of using two running backs very well, I might add. Alvin Kamara and Latavius Murray always had fantasy value every single week. I'm not worried about that aspect. So when it comes to DeAndre Swift, I'm looking at him, and again, I think this is a safe side. 233 carries. Some of that is because it's a 17-game season. Otherwise, I'd have him closer to that 200 number. But 233 carries, 984 yards, nine rushing touchdowns, and this is the kicker. 83 targets with 68 receptions, 561 yards, two touchdowns. It's 252 points. It's 252 points. Outside of the concussion... He doesn't have an injury history from last year, so we expect him to be pretty relatively healthy throughout the season. And that's where Jamal Williams might actually help him stay relatively healthy because he's not going to get you know all the work all the time. He's not always going to be taking the beating. I still have Jamal Williams getting over 148 carries, over 600 yards rushing, six rushing touchdowns in his own right, and 43 receptions in his own right. I still have Jamal Williams getting that much work, and yet DeAndre Swift still comes out with very high-end RB2 numbers. And if he does make some extra big plays, if he does get some extra touchdowns, we're talking about a guy who does have low-end RB1 potential. You spoke to it. Lions have a better offensive line than I think people realize. And the entire offense outside of TJ Hawkinson is going to flow through the backfield. 
That's what they're going to be set up to do. That's why there's going to be such a high volume for both Swift and Williams to be able to share from. I'm a big fan of Swift. I love him as a solid high-end RB2. I think he's definitely worth a second-round pick, which is where his ADP is at right now, which is where you're probably going to have to draft him. But he also has that ick, that explosive factor to even have a higher ceiling to go along with the projections that I have for him. So just speak to DeAndre Swift and Jamal Williams. Yeah, I'm I'm not necessarily worried about the split either. Um, I think that we kind of seen Jamal Williams and Aaron Jones kind of be able to split the backfield just fine in Green Bay last year. And, you know, Jamal Williams is annoying. He could be out there in a lot of plays, but he didn't take away from the production of Aaron Jones overall. I think Swift, the one thing I'm concerned about him in general is I do wonder, I'm a little bit more concerned in the red zone than you seem to be. You seem to think he's going to be the guy that's going to be utilized a lot in the red zone. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think he's going to be the guy that's kind of utilized a lot more in the passing game. And I don't think the split changes. What'd you say? I just don't think the split changes. I mean, remember, this is a guy who got red zone carries last year who scored 10 touchdowns last year. Yeah, but you talked about Anthony Lynn, and Anthony Lynn had people like Fred Jackson and C.J. Spiller split and carry. C.J. Spiller really was the guy that used the inside the 20 in the red zone. You saw Austin Eckler in the Chargers last year, in the last couple of years, not really be the guy they used up all the time in the red zone. They like to have that bigger back to kind of smash it in. I think he kind of gets predictable with that sometimes. Probably one of my on. I do think um, Anthony Lynn, I think, is going to be kind of a detriment when it comes to the touchdown possibility. But I do love him when it comes to the passing game. I do think he's definitely a second-round value in a PPR league because I think he's going to be featured a lot in the passing game. Standard league, maybe I have him a little bit lower than you seem to, but I do think overall he's going to be very productive. I don't see the nine touchdowns rushing, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's 11 touchdowns cumulative just between the catching and the running ball. Um, I think he's going to have opportunity to be a big play guy. I think that he's going to be less carries he gets in some senses actually are, more, are better for him. I don't think he's a guy who can is a bell cow, in my opinion. Um, so I like the idea of him getting all 15 carries, 15 touches, I should say, and being a highly effective with those. Yeah, I don't disagree with that part. I hit the alarm button because I want to talk about CJ Spiller, Austin Eckler. You're bringing up guys who were never that efficient when given carries in the red zone to begin with. This is a different type of running back to those type of guys that they were under Anthony Lynn. So that, that's where I'm different with you on this, where DeAndre Swift, even though he's not the biggest guy in the world, has shown some guys just have a nose for the end zone. He's shown that he has a nose for the end zone. He was more efficient in the red zone than Adrian Peterson was. That's why I don't think it's an automatic that they're going to switch it to a different back. Now, I don't think it's always going to be him in the goal line, but I think the split of 60-40, let's say, between Jamal Williams is every category, including red zone touchdown uh opportunities because this isn't a guy you have to take out in that situation. And I think he's different than a CJ Spiller. He's different than an Austin Eckler in that sense when it comes to actually being able to run the football within the five, let's say. You keep talking about the efficiency. I would like to see how many actual touches he got versus Adrian Peterson inside the five, inside the 10 yards. I think that's where you see the lot. The guys were utilized a lot more the bigger backs were utilized a lot more. Now, he might have been efficient when he was out there because teams weren't expecting to run the ball, maybe. But I don't think it's necessarily he's such a great red zone they got runner. A, by the season's end, they had about the same. Now, you had you had the differences in the season where beginning of the year, they were playing Adrian Peterson more. They weren't playing DeAndre Swift as much in general, just, just throughout the game. 
not just in the not just in the red zone. When it made the change to DeAndre Swift later on in the season, he was out touching Adrian Peterson in the red zone. For the season, it came out to be about the same, but it was it was all it was a matter of was who was actually the running back who was being more featured in the game plan that week or that that portion of the season basically. That's that's what it boiled down to. So if it, all things are being equal, which is what we're trying to project out here between a DeAndre Swift and Jamal Williams because that's what we would expect from week 1 on, DeAndre Swift being the lead guy. That, in my mind, if you really want to work off a similar split, would mean that DeAndre Swift is going to be ahead of Jamal Williams, even inside the red zone. This is a new coaching staff, so I don't totally want to go off of last year as far as that goes. It is Anthony Lynn that we're talking about. But again, I don't think DeAndre Swift, he's not going to get pigeonholed to be taken out of the red zone is more my point. I mean, I don't necessarily think that it's going to be that they're going to phase him out and completely out of the red zone. I just think that they're going to prefer to use other backs in the red zone, where I do question whether he gets nine rushing touchdowns or not. That's all I'm saying. We will will see there. But again, to your point, I think he does get 11 touchdowns total or at least 10. We're talking about double digits one way or another when it came to receiving or rushing. But I disagree with you. I think he's not going to get pigeonholed out of of the red zone. All right, what we're going to do now, we're going to take a quick break. Come back on the other side. We got the Jaguars and the 49ers to talk about. And of course, we got the mailbag segment for you guys at the end of the show. So stay tuned. Still a lot more to talk about on the MD's Fantasy Football Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, WWSRN, right after this. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're listening to the MD's Fantasy Football Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back in MD Nation. You are listening to the MD's Fantasy Football Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, WWSRN, also presented to you by Belly Up Sports. As always, I'm your host, Dan Mater, joined back here again after his week off, Mr. Chris Dauthauer. The first half of the show was a good one. We went through the Jets and the Lions. We broke down pretty much every aspect you need to know from a fantasy standpoint as we transition out of Dynasty Talk into 2021, getting you guys prepared early early in June for the 2021 season, continuing on now with the Jaguars, the 49ers. And of course, we're going to have the mailbag segment for you at the end of the show. All right, Chris. So now we get into the meaty meat. Talk about rookie quarterbacks. Talk about guys who might have great beginning value in Trevor Lawrence, because we're talking about the Jacksonville Jaguars here to kick things off. A lot of interesting things to get into when it comes to the Jaguars because there's a lot of potential fantasy hopefulness, I would say, when it comes to a bunch of these players. First, let's talk about the fact coaching staff, again, just to reiterate it in case you guys forgotten, don't know, whatever, outside of Urban Myers, I'm sure everybody knows that. You have Daryl Bevel, who's the offensive coordinator, also the run game coordinator. Brian Schottenheimer from Seattle is actually going to be the passing game coordinator. Now, that, you can take that however you want it because Daryl Bevel is going to be the main offense coordinator. He's going to be the one calling the plays. So that matters more than Brian Schottenheimer. But you have two guys with pretty similar backgrounds coming into the situation, which actually made it a little bit easier on guys like me trying to project out what I think is going to wind up happening because I know what the philosophy is going to be. They're going to be on the same page at the very least. And in case you guys don't know, the defensive coordinator, Joe Cullen, He was the Baltimore Ravens defensive line coach for the past five seasons. Just to kind of give you guys an idea of what type of defense they're going to be running. Now, it doesn't matter what type of defense the Jaguars are going to be running because they're going to be awful no matter what it is. They have some young pieces. They're starting to come up. But overall, this I expect this to be a bottom tier 
somewhere between the 26th and 32nd worst defense in the NFL this season, once again, which again, protracts well when you're talking about what's the fantasy ceiling, what's the fantasy value overall for Trevor Lawrence. Look, let's look at Justin Herbert last year. Let's look at Joe Burrow last year. Joe Burrow, weeks one through eight, was the ninth best quarterback in fantasy. Justin Herbert finishes ninth best quarterback in fantasy overall for the season. You know what they had in common? They threw the ball 40 times a game. Trevor Lawrence has that potential to be throwing the ball, not just because of the system, but because of the defense, because of the whole entirety of what we expect the game flows to be, which is, again, similar to the Lions, similar to the Jets. A lot of commonalities between these three teams that we've talked about so far. The defense is terrible. You have garbage time points you're going to have to put up. You're going to have to score to try to stay in games. And even when it doesn't look pretty, the volume is going to wind up being there. So he does have that potential for 40 pass attempts. And unlike a Herbert, well, I shouldn't say unlike a Herbert because he had a few rushing touchdowns, but he has more potential than a Herbert and a Burrow does as far as what he may put up as far as rushing stats. They're talking about a guy who had a another guy who like Zach Wilson had a five to one pass to carry ratio. Again, this is another team that projects out to have at least 600 pass attempts. I actually have him about 636 for the season. Projects out to be about, he has a potential of 120 rush attempts. That means he would have a crazy floor. That means he'd be up there with the Josh Allen's, the Kyler Murray's, the Lamar Jackson's of the world that we talked about. Now, I don't think he's going to run quite that much. That would be his ceiling. But again, let's take it down 15, 20%. We're talking about a guy 90 to 100 rush attempts especially as a rookie, especially in a situation where he's got to move the ball, where he's got to move the chains, he's got to score, he's got to score points somehow. He's going to lean. The young quarterbacks will lean more on their athleticism early on. I expect Trevor Lawrence to be a real guy who's going to be putting up a lot of carries in that situation. And I project him on the low side. I have him for 70 carries, 386 rushing yards, four rushing touchdowns. I think that's actually projecting more closer to his floor, frankly. That gives him a hell of a floor. I'm going to say it right now. Trevor Lawrence is going to finish as a top 12 quarterback with the potential to finish as a top 10. He's a guy that I'm going to take between the 14th and 16th round in your redraft leagues and 12-man leagues as a guy that I can I can either stream you with somebody or I'm going to see how it goes early on in the season and maybe ride it out with him as my quarterback as I stock up in other positions. There's a lot of guys that you can value in those situations. He has all the makings of a guy who has a good floor to be a QB1 and potential for something more as it sets up with this offense. So speak to me about Trevor Lawrence, the Jacksonville Jaguars, and his 2021 expectations in your eyes. So I definitely think Trevor Lawrence is a quarterback that you should be looking to draft. Um, I wouldn't necessarily go too early on that, but as a guy, I definitely think is a good option to have on your team. Uh, I think he's, like he pointed out, he's going to have a hell of a floor. I think, the, I think you're definitely going to see more than 70 carries. Um, I think that that's where you're going to see a lot of production. I question the volume passing wise more so than you seem to. I don't think that he's going to be throwing the ball over the field. I think he's going to have probably more of his production having the floor with the running game. Um, I see this guy as being something that I definitely think he can finish the top 12. And I definitely think he's going to be a guy that kind of reminds me a lot of probably statistically one of like a Ryan Tannehill in a lot of ways where you know that you're going to get a consistent um, effort. You're going to get consistent points. You might question whether or not you're going to get the volume passing wise. But I do think speak overall, to me why. why. Why don't you think he would get the volume passing wise? Because I don't think there's other – Okay, so I don't think the number one, you talked about two coordinators that aren't overly aggressive in the passing game. Bevel started opening up a lot more in Detroit last year, but previous to that, there's a reason we've been begging for Zach Wilson to 
not Zach Wilson, I'm sorry, Russell Wilson to cook for the last like five, six, seven years now. Because part of those reasons, both those coaches were coaches in Seattle. Both those coaches were, are, oh, I'm sorry, not Bevel, was also coaching the Minnesota Vikings where he had Tavares Jackson. He's not a guy that necessarily opens up the offense and throws the ball a lot. They prefer to run the ball. They play Tennessee twice. They're going to play Houston twice. So there's two games right there, or four games, I should say, right there. They're not going to get a high-volume passing game. I think you look at somebody like Trevor Lawrence, they're, they're kind of – they're going to utilize them. They're going to let them be effective. But I don't think he's going to be a guy who's going to be zinging it all over the field. I think Joe Burrow is kind of built to be able to do that in a lot of ways because the offense was kind of predicated for being a pass-happy offense in a lot of – before, even before he took over as a starting last year. I don't I think, think Anthony Lynn's pass-happy, and Justin Herbert was able to put up those many passes. Justin Herbert – Justin Herbert put up great numbers, and I can't argue that. If you think he's going to be Justin Herbert, then you know more power to you. I don't think he has a Keenan Allen on his team. I don't think he has the same kind of uh, uh, skill sets or things around him. Marvin Jones is an okay receiver. DJ Shark's a good receiver. But these guys aren't guys who get open consistently. They're guys more big play guys. So I think when you look at how they're going to be constituted, I think Jacksonville will take their shots down the field. I think they're going to be more of a lower-volume passing game. I don't think it's going to be spread it out and throw it all over. But I do think Trevor Lawrence is going to have a very much nice floor in the sense that he's going to be a guy who's going to run. They're going to use the RPO action. I think that they're going to have a lot of um, easy throws for him. And I think he's going to be using his legs or throwing it to that number one receiver more, more often than not. Um, I just don't see them dropping back and throwing the ball over, to pick, over the field. They have an offensive line that's kind of built to be physical and an offensive line that can pass protect that well. Yeah, but they're going to be in shotgun at least a lot of the time, too, the way oh, this yeah. offense is going to set up. Like I said, I have 636 pass attempts over 17 games. So that comes it comes out to about 36, 37 pass attempts per game. What I am counting on, while I don't necessarily disagree with you from the scheme fit, the coaching staff, what I am counting on is the fact that defense is going to be so bad that it's not going to matter, that he's going to have to throw the ball, that the entire second half is going to be nothing but pass attempts, essentially what it boils down to. So the volume, I have no doubt the volume is going to be there. I don't, I don't question that at all. I'm for about 4,500 yards, 30 passing touchdowns. Trevor Lawrence, I, I'm, I'm big on him being that guy you could take late and still wind up with a top 12 quarterback on your hands. I'm not worried about the volume there, but ultimately we see eye to eye as far as can he finish top 12 and his rushing ability is going to give him a very nice floor on a week to week basis because he has weapons. He does have weapons. He has DJ Chark. He has Marvin Jones. LaVisca Chanel can be a big time threat. I, he he has things in place. It kind of it reminds me a little bit of Zach Wilson in his situation we talked about earlier in the show. It reminds me of Joe Burrow last year where he had Tyler Boyd and T. Higgins and what we thought was going to be an okay A.J. Green. Even even Justin Herbert, like, no, Keenan Allen's better than all those weapons, but he only had Keenan Allen. He didn't have anybody else. Mike Williams was nothing. Jalen Guyton was a guy he threw a bomb to every so often. Hunter Henry really wasn't that big of a factor either. So I wouldn't go out and he had Keenan Allen, but outside of that, I wouldn't say he had a ton of weapons to deal with. Either. He, had, he had banged up Austin Eckler for most of the season. And he still had those kind of pass attempts. But so this, but I want to talk about the wide receivers. So this is where Trevor Lawrence himself bodes well for these type of wide receivers. Like you said, these aren't guys that get a ton of separation. They don't get open all the time a lot. But these are big play guys who go up and get the ball. These are guys who, if you give them 50-50 shots, will win in those situations more times than not. That's the one thing I like about Trevor Lawrence going into the NFL, I, th I think, more than anything. We talk about this when we, talk, when we reference Ryan Fitzpatrick all the time. If you're a quarterback who's just willing to give your guy a chance and have that aggression, 
it's, it's a wonder the kind of production you can put up because so many of these guys are looking to throw the ball safely to the wide receiver who gets separation, to the wide receiver who's over the middle in the slot, don't want to take chances down the field. Trevor Lawrence is going to be a gunslinger. He's not going to worry about that. So will he probably get a decent amount of picks? Yeah, I'm looking at it now, and I have projected 15 interceptions on the year. I think that's a real possibility. But is he going to be a guy who gets these wide receivers like a DJ Chark, like a Marvin Jones in situations where they can succeed? 100%. And I like that fit for them quite a bit. Now, DJ Chark is somebody who I thought I would be a lot more excited on. But he has a higher injury risk ratio than I anticipated. Because he didn't, re- didn't really realize until you go back and look at it, DJ Chark has not finished 16 games or, or a complete season at any point in his career. He's been in the league for three years now. He has an 8-1 to one injury ratio, which means we have to expect he's going to miss at least two games. Now, it's not a lot. But it's enough to take him from a guy that people are excited about as having the potential of being a top tier ish wide receiver two to, you know what? I think he's actually more of a low end wide receiver two, maybe a higher end wide receiver three. I have him for over, I have him 117 targets. I'm getting 79 receptions, just over 1,000 yards, about seven touchdowns. And last year, his average per game was seven targets, four catches, 54 yards. I would say, given the abysmalness of the quarterback position all of last year, that Trevor Lawrence is at least one target, one reception per game better for DJ Chark. I mean, would you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I think- just based off of that, just based off of that, and I think that's a safe assumption, DJ Chark has a nice, solid floor as a high wide receiver three, low wide receiver two. If he, if he does take off, if there is chemistry, if he is hitting more big plays with him, which is the potential be there, then Char could have more, more, more value than even that. But that's what we're talking about with Trevor Lawrence. He's at least one target, one reception better for DJ Char. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think that you make an excellent point. And also, we talked with the coordinators. The coordinators have a history of kind of utilizing the big receivers down the field, like you kind of pointed out. Uh, they like to get the guys kind of pushed down. They like to get the, the big play receivers. And they give those guys shots to make plays, too. They're not a team that necessarily bashes away from them throwing a jump ball up. Um, they look for these big receivers. We saw Schottenheimer use it, whether he was in the Jets or whether he was in Seattle. We've seen similar things with Bevel. So I do think when it comes to the DJ Sharks' ability to get down the field and score touchdowns especially, I think he's going to get a, definitely a nice shot, be it a good, solid number two, number three receiver for your team. Um, I'm a little disappointed as well because I was really, really high on DJ Shark. And then I kind of did think about the injury thing as well. And I also had to go back and remember, like, part of why he got, you know, kind of questioned coming out of college because he had a lot of injuries in college and he couldn't really show his whole his whole arsenal in a sense. Um, so the injury thing is something to kind of keep in mind. It's not a reason you don't necessarily, you know, go after him, but it does make you kind of question whether how high you go for a DJ Shark. Yeah, and Marvin Jones is somebody who I think will have wide receiver five value that you can kind of take off the waiver wire here and there. I'm not going to be drafting him, but he's very, very similar to DJ Chark. And I expect Chark to be the number one target, at least over Marvin Jones anyway. So it kind of limits what he can possibly do. I think he's a nice addition. I think he provides the floor for Trevor Lawrence throwing the football. But he himself, I only have him for about five touchdowns, just just under 800 yards on the season. I think he'll be a wide receiver five that you'll be able to utilize. He's another guy who has a little bit of an injury risk kind of baked into his statistics as well. I think the guy that we really have to question, where's his ceiling to floor ratio is LaVisca Chenault. Now I have him for about, 57 receptions, 735 yards, five receiving touchdowns. 
But I'm really curious to how he's going to get utilized. Is he going to be the guy who lines in the backfield and gets those type of, of touches as well? Is he going to take a next step up maybe in his route running ability? Because I think he's going to get to play the slot. He's going to be one of those bigger physical deep threat wide receiver slots. This, this, this team's going to be very, very vertical in the passing game, just the way their, their personnel is constituted. So I think LaVisca Chanel is kind of a wild card factor of where his potential and floor could be as far as this offense goes, depending upon where he's at in his development. And also, you know, is he able to possibly usurp Marvin Jones as far as target share goes at some point in the season? Good. Yeah. So I don't know if he's going to be able to, take over the targets. I look at how kind of Detroit used Galladay and Marvin Jones together, and I kind of see a similar fit with Shark and Jones. When it comes to Chenault, I feel like he has to really elevate his, his running skill. I mean, his pass running ability. Um, I think he's not a great route runner at all. I think he's a gadget player a lot of ways in my book. And when I look at his kind of fit right now, I question his value because if they're truly going to have Travis Etienne out in the field and they're going to be using him in different ways that they kind of talked about, then he kind of takes away what Chenault does the best. Um, so I kind of wonder what Chenault actually becomes. We even saw when the receiver core was all banged up, Chenault still didn't do that well. People kept expecting to have that big game. People kept trying to talk about how he's going to he's going to break out, he's going to break out, but the guy never really did. Um, I think that he's a poor, poor man's Curtis Samuel in a lot of ways, and I think that he has to definitely step up his skill set. Now, will he be utilized in some jet sweep actions? Will he get some gadget plays here or there to utilize him? Sure, but I think overall you're going to see this team be a little bit more physical with their receivers and maybe have more two tight ends than we expect. I think that you're going to see the Marvin Jones and um, DJ Shark, as long as they're healthy, be the primary receivers out there. Well, I don't necessarily think that Chenault's going to have a guy that's going to be out there consistent on a consistent basis. Yeah, I mean, you're leaning more towards the floor, and I don't necessarily disagree. I think you brought up a key point there is Travis Etienne. We know that Urban Meyer wanted to draft Kadarius Tony when he wasn't able to. He drafted Etienne with the idea that he was going to take on that role. But my point is, too, is I kind of wonder, well, when they go through practice and realize LaVisca Chenault is probably better fitted for that type of role in the Urban Meyer offense. That's where I get a little bit curious as can that change? And then Chenault winds up in that where they kind of use him more as all over the place, kind of like a Curtis Samuel, like you're saying. I Curtis Samuel's more fine-tuned, but I think LaVisca Chenault from an athletic standpoint has a bigger potential. Again, it'll come down to that. I just think while you're more towards the floor, I do think it's an interesting situation because I think he would actually be better fitted for that quote-unquote, Kandarius Tony-type role within the Urban Meyer offense. So I want to see how that actually winds up playing out, even though it doesn't seem to be the mindset at the time. But he he's the wild card. Now, you're not drafting him in redraft leagues. I, I wouldn't draft. In fact, the only wide receiver I would want to draft is DJ Chark. Even Marvin Jones, if you're taking him, you're taking him because he has a wide receiver five floor. And I think you can just find guys with more upside, ultimately speaking. But let's move on to the running backs, because that's the big question. Travis Etienne, James Robinson, what is this split going to be? Here's what I'm envisioning. Because you're talking about Daryl Bell, you're talking about Brian Schottenheimer, and I think you can look at Seattle, you can look at Detroit last year, and I think you can get an idea as to how this thing's going to play out. By season's end, I expect Travis Etienne to have more carries and, and be leader as far as that goes. And certainly, we'll definitely have more receptions. But early on in the year, I wouldn't be surprised if you're seeing kind of a 55-45, maybe 60-40 split in favor of James Robinson. We're going to mute your mic real quick there. In favor of James Robinson getting the ball as far as carries go. But I expect Travis Etienne to always be the number one target throughout the year. The question will be exactly when in the season does Travis Etienne take over? A swift under Bevel 
when I should say under Bevel, when Bevel took over as head coach, when he became the starting running back, his pro rate at that point for a 16 game season, it was a small sample size, but for a 16 game season would have been over 200 carries, 208 carries. Exactly. 65 receptions. I expect something similar on those numbers to a Travis Etienne as far as his rate goes. I have him projected for 162 carries, 690 yards, seven rushing touchdowns, 56 receptions, 424 yards, and four receiving touchdowns. So I have him for 11 touchdowns, similar to kind of what Swift did last year. Those are similar to Swift's numbers, where he was a solid flex play to RB2 by the end of the season when he became the starter. I think there's a similar situation for Travis Etienne. I... I believe ETN is going to wind up being overdrafted. I think his ADP is going to be higher than what we're going to value him at. And I want to caution people to that because I don't think Travis ETN is going to be the main ball carrier early in the season. And I think that's something that people aren't really taking into consideration because they're saying, hey, he's got first round draft capital. Therefore, he's going to be a starter out the get-go. While, yes, they definitely don't have any ties to James Robinson, that much has been clear. I still think you're going to give James Robinson more of the goal line work as the bigger back. And Travis Etienne's not somebody who projects out to me to be a bell cow. Even if it's not James Robinson next year, I think they're still going to have somebody for him to share the workload with. I think there's a real plan in place that both of these guys are going to be significantly involved. How do you see that splitting up? I think you make an excellent point. I think the Detroit um, backfield is the, the basic uh, way I would just look at the, it's unfolding in a lot of ways. We saw Adrian Peterson, we saw Carryon Johnson, we saw Swift. We saw Swift hit the draft capital. We saw that he was the last guy to actually get the opportunity. We have a similar coaching staff. I look at this team. I think, to your point, I think they're going to kind of utilize their other backs more so in the beginning. I think by the end of the season, it'll be clear that NT is the most talented back and will become the starter. I think he's the best pass catcher out of the backfield as well. But I think early on, especially pass protection-wise, you're not going to see him as a guy going to be out there as much as people expect. He's not going to be starring in week one or week two or probably even week six. Um, I think this is a guy you're kind of looking for as the season progresses. This is a guy you want to have on your roster, but don't get don't get twisted that you you burned in the in the beginning. Because I look at like I said, Swift. If you were drafting Swift early last, like a lot of people were, and they thought he was going to have this you know breakout right off the bat, you didn't get that. You had to sit there and wonder why Adrian Peterson got carries, even why both both Scarborough got carries at one point. So you had to cut, you know, you had to get kind of frustrated to actually get to the production you were looking for. And Swift had a nice little run towards the end of the season, but it was only about four or five games. So you're looking at ETN, I think, a lot of different ways where this guy's going to be utilized. He will be the top back by the end of the season. I think Gene Robinson's just the guy, in my opinion. Um, I think Carlos Hyde will kind of get his opportunity. Some of the Adrian Peterson got his opportunity last year. He's a veteran guy. They'll kind of want to use him, let him kind of take the, the dirty run, so to speak. Um, but I think overall, ETN's the back that owned in that backfield. And I do think that it's going to be a three-way split early on and then eventually become a two-way thing and eventually ETN's just the man. Yeah, just to give you guys an idea on the timeline of what happened in Detroit last year, which is just a very comparable situation to this, from weeks one through seven, it was 69 to 31 as far as the carry split in favor of Peterson over Swift. And then after that, it was 69-31 exactly, but this time in favor of Swift over Peterson once Bevel became the head coach, took over, and Swift started starting. So I see a similar timeline where maybe about halfway through the year is when you would see Travis Etienne take the flip and not only be the guy who gets the majority of the receptions, but also starts to get the majority of the carries there as well. Yes, Etienne's the guy you want to own, without a doubt. But don't overdraft him. This is a guy I can, right now, I can see his ADP being in the top four rounds. You're going to have to wait for that production. Now, maybe you're fine with it because, hey, if he can be your flex guy for now because he's going to have enough receptions in order to get you that floor 
and you can wait for it, then okay. But I think you're going to be overdrafting if you draft him that high. I think you more want to aim fifth, sixth round, 12-team leagues, somewhere in that territory for a guy who's going to have the potential to be an RB2 down the road, but really more, really just a flex play early on in the season that you're banking on for receptions. This is a situation that is going to be fluid. While I have these projections out now, this is something I expect to tweak and change as we move through training camp because we're going to get more information preseason the one benefit of this being a young team and a first-time head coach in the NFL, things of that nature, I think we're going to see these guys play more in the preseason than we would other teams. So we're going to, between training camp and that, I think we're actually going to get a decent idea before the season actually kicks off. And we'll just speak to that point real quick. This is why you draft later on. This is why you draft as close to opening day as you possibly can because you want as much information as possible, but you also want to avoid the possibility of guys getting injured. Don't, I know everyone gets excited. I do too. Don't draft early August. Don't do it. If you can wait till that, till that first weekend of September, that would actually be ideal because these things will play itself out. We'll have a better idea going into it. But as of right now, that's kind of how I see this breaking down. We got to go into the San Francisco 49ers because we're actually running very, very short on time today. 49ers coming up. The big question, let's just get it out the way. Jimmy Garoppolo, Trey Lance. Trey Lance isn't going to start right away. It's not going to happen. It's going to be Jimmy Garoppolo. Now, here's the thing. I do have Trey Lance playing at some point this season. Why? What have we been talking about all show? The injury rate ratio. It, you can't ignore it when it comes to Jimmy Garoppolo. We can't ignore why they wanted a quarterback in the first place. Unfortunately, I cannot project Garoppolo to play more than 10 games this season. That means seven games out of Trey Lance. The question from that is going to be, does he play 10 games straight and then get hurt, or is it a couple games... Or does he play four to five games and then get injured? The reason why that's a big question, because once Jagropolo gets injured and Trey Lance comes in, there's a real possibility Trey Lance doesn't wind up coming back out. Because of the, because of the fact that he's the first-round quarterback, he's supposed to be the future of the franchise. So you're going to have to deal with that element. Ultimately, for redraft purposes, this sort of takes care of itself because you're just not drafting the San Francisco 49ers quarterback. But just speak to that real quick, what you see that scenario playing out into. Yeah, I think there's going to be different pressures that are kind of going to hit this team when it comes to Trey Lance and Jimmy Garoppolo. And all the injury things you have to kind of consider about and worry about, you need the 49ers need to start off well. If they don't start off well, I just think there's a good chance you're going to hit a clamor for Trey Lance. You're going to have the kind of push to try to inject some kind of, you know, a more athleticism on their offense. Um, this team does still kind of lack some playmakers on the outside. We kind of talked about Ayuk and Samuel, um, but they're not guys who necessarily are great, um, you know, superstar receivers in a sense. And I think when Jimmy G kind of has what he has around them, isn't something that's particularly you know, proficient um, in scoring. But I do think when it comes to his ability, that Jimmy G is going to be a guy that you're going to have a hard time getting off the field. I expect him to come with a chip on his shoulder this year. I expect him to have a really nice um, play. I just kind of wonder if he gets the opportunity to shine in a lot of ways. We kind of talked about being in the past about him and Kyle Shanahan's marriage and Kyle Shanahan seems to not just, doesn't like him, I guess. I don't know how to kind of put it otherwise. Um, he's not Kirk Cousins. He's not the, not his guy. Uh, it seems more and more that it must have been John Lynch's trade, not Kyle Shanahan's trade when they traded for him. But I think when it comes down to the ability, I think Jimmy G is the only player, the quarterback that gives him a true chance to contend and be a competitive team. We've seen Nick Mullins. We've seen C.J. Bethard. Um, they've always pretty much stunk. And when they come out there, the 49ers completely drop off offensively, even though they have that great scheme and they have that great uh, coordinator. I think that overall, you need a guy who can actually be efficient. I think when it comes down to it, if they're trying to win, Jimmy G will be the quarterback. If they're out of the playoffs, then you'll see Trey Lance. 
Well, and everything you just talked about speaks to the fantasy value of the wide receivers, the pass catchers in general when it comes to this team. I don't know why people seem to forget this. Jimmy Garoppolo is a very accurate quarterback. He's a very good passer. They win a lot of games, actually, when he starts. But that goes to speak to, when it comes to Brian Ayuk, Debo Samuel, George Kittle, you want Jimmy Garoppolo to be the quarterback for these guys to reach their fantasy ceiling, not Trey Lance. And that's going to have a big deal as far as their value. Because a lot of people, they're excited about Brian Ayuk. They're excited about Debo Samuel. I would be excited about George Kittle either way, just because of the dynamic talent that he is. We'll talk about him in a second. But let's talk about these wide receivers. Now, when it comes to Brian Ayuk and Debo Samuel, the big thing you're trying to figure out is who's actually the number one wide receiver of the two. There wasn't a lot of games last year that were on the field together because Debo Samuel was in and out of the lineup, whether it was injury or COVID list, whatever the case may be. He missed quite a few games last season. The weeks that they played together, weeks four through seven, and I went with that because it was a nice month-long stretch to kind of take advantage of. It was pretty close. Brandon Ayuk out-targeted him. It was 26 targets to 22. Out-produced him a little bit, had three more catches. Now, the big kicker is that he had almost 100 more yards off of three more receptions than Debo Samuel. Two touchdowns to one touchdown. So if favored Ayuk, the big difference, of course, being Brandon Ayuk is going to get the opportunities to be the deep field threat or... He just has a skill set where he's better after 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 receiving yards after catch. He's better. He's explosive. He makes guys miss. He makes guys miss tackles. He's going to be the more explosive guy. So Brandon Ayuk, when it comes to the two, even that small sample size, it indicates to me that he's definitely the guy you want to own as far as which one of the two do you do you favor. Do you agree with that? A hundred percent. I mean, I think not not just Brandon Ayuk better after the catch. I think why he make why he's so much better. And the Debo Samuel and why he's my number one receiver for that team is he can actually run routes. Debo Samuel is not a great route runner. He doesn't get a lot of separation. He doesn't get out of his breaks very well. And a lot of his touches are manufactured. So when you were kind of talking about the numbers and how the difference in yards were, I think it's partly the yards they have to catch. But I also think it's a lot of the production of what they try to scheme for Debo Samuel. You get a lot of screens. You get a lot of crossing patterns. You get a lot of simple routes where he can be kind of closer to the line of scrimmage and try to make something happen like a running back would. Ayuk actually can run the route tree. He can actually push the ball down the field. He can actually get in and out of his breaks really well. And I think that he's going to continue to progress and stand out as number one receiver for that team as the season progresses. I think when you look at it, his route running ability and how it transition, how which should transfer, um, should transfer to the the field and that offense. Um, I think that he's he's the guy that should be the number one receiver. He should be the, the number your wide receiver in a lot of ways. I think that you're going to see him be moved around. He can play inside. He can play outside. He can do a lot more things than I think Debo Samuel. I think Debo Samuel is kind of a one-trick pony in a lot of ways and primarily should be utilized mostly in the slot when he's out there. Um, so I do think that you're going to see how you could be the number one receiver overall. Yeah, agreed. I'm not touching Debo Samuel. I, look, when when Ayuk was out and, I, and Samuel came in, I believe it was week 11 or week 12, I, Samuel, Samuel lit it up. If there's a situation where there's just one of these wide receivers out there, yeah, you want to own them, you want to play them, whether that be Debo or Brandon Ayuk. But as long as both of these guys are on the field, it's heavily Brandon Ayuk's way. I don't think it's all that close, to be honest. And as a result, Debo Samuel to me is somebody who projects out to be, at best, with an Ayuk on the field with him, a wide receiver five, wide receiver four. I'm not targeting him. Now, Ayuk, on the other hand, he's got a wide range of outcomes. I have him projected for about 113 targets, 74 receptions, 974 yards, six touchdowns. Uh, just because you still have to deal with George Kittle. This is still going to be a run-first offense, generally speaking. But he has that it factor where he can make something happen with the ball in his hands. And if Debo does go down to injury, which we saw last year, we saw a little bit in his college years as well, 
he becomes suddenly a very highly productive, at least high end wide receiver too. In those weeks we saw last year, everybody you needed him on your team. Basically, he's one of the big pickups of the year. So I love Brandon Ayuk quite a bit. He's somebody who I'm definitely going to be uh, targeting as a wide receiver three with upside heading into the 2021 draft. I think the big question everybody has on their minds is what is George Kittle going to be? We know he's great when he's on the field, but he got a five to one injury rate. We have to expect that he's going to miss about three games. And honestly, if he only missed three games, I think we would all be very, very excited. And if he plays 14 games, which is what I'm giving him as of right now, based on this injury, because again, it's not just how many games you missed. It's your age. It's the, it's the volume, all that kind of factors in to kind of average itself out a little bit. If he plays 14 games, which I think we would all be excited about. He's the number one pass catcher of this team. 118 targets, 87 receptions, over 1,000 yards, actually over 1,100 yards, six touchdowns. His pro rate last year, he only played eight games last year, would have been over over that. He would have been over 1,200 yards. He would have had 96 receptions, over 120 targets. Uh, So George Kittle is a guy that you know he's on the field. He's a top-end play. There's a reason why he's still going to be drafted primarily as a number three tight end going into this year. Can George Kittle stay on the field enough, Chris, to hit these level numbers, to hit where his ADP, frankly, is at, where people are going to be drafting him? I think so. Um, I do have a little concerns, not just the games played, but how healthy he is in his games played. This guy's a warrior. He's been out there on one leg with one shoulder. This guy can be out there no matter what. So you do hope that he's not he's healthy when he's out in the field as well. I think well. that gets him into trouble more times than not, don't you? I, I, I agree, and I think that's kind of the problem. This guy wants to be out there all the time, but that's also where you see sometimes the games where he's not the production you're looking for. But as long as he's out there healthy, and I think there's a good chance – I think this is going to be a year where you see George Kittle kind of blow up in a lot of ways. I do think he's going to be healthy for most of the season. It's more of a gut thing than an actual statistics thing. I can't, like, I can't go off the ratio necessarily, and I appreciate the numbers that you have that kind of back it up. But I look at Kittle as a guy – he didn't get hurt a lot in college – his injuries seem to be kind of more about wear and tear in a lot of senses. And I hope that the 49ers kind of realize that he can't be the guy that blocks everybody all the time. Um, they have upgraded significantly on their offensive line the last couple of years. So I think that might help him a lot as well. And maybe he's kind of be able, be able to kind of be more of a finesse tight end in some senses where he's not, not always, always at the block. Yeah. Yeah. He's always a chip. He's not the block. He's been a lead guy all the time. Um, and I think that we had, you know, we, we had concerns with Gronk with that throughout his, his, you know, his time in new England. But when Gronk had his every couple of years, he'd have those. He just played every game. So you kind of, I think Kittle has that kind of kind of do to be, you know, in a sense, be healthy for a season, have a season where he kind of shows what he's got and has that breakout year. And I think that we talked about Jimmy G being, you know, really efficient and being good. I think that Kittle is going to be the biggest beneficiary of all of that. I think that he's kind of the heart and soul of their offense in so many different ways. And I think the 49ers, if they're going to be competitive, it's going to be because George Kittle's, you know, having a great year. No, I, there's nothing to disagree with there with George Kittle. It comes down to that. This is why I have, I'm going to have Darren Waller ahead of George Kittle. I'm going to have Darren Waller as a number two tight end over George Kittle because of this factor. Cause he just, again, the wear and tear, it's not going to go away with the way he plays, the way he plays through everything. He kind of sets himself up where I'm just not going to expect him to play more than 14 games this season. It's why he's going to be my number three, not my number two. But when they're both on the field, even with there being other weapons, maybe this year plays out a little bit differently because there's nobody else to throw the ball to in the Raiders and Darren Waller. But most of the time, he's still a more dynamic talent, especially after the catch. And that's where it kind of comes down to. So they're both on the field. George Kittle, to me, he's second to only Travis Kelsey. But as far as the overall season goes, 
I mean, he's going to have to be behind Darren Waller for me just because of that factor. You can't trust him to stay completely healthy. He hasn't played a full season yet in his career, frankly. Uh, so we're going to have to see that project out. But hopefully, and I do have confidence, he'll play more than the eight games he did last year, too. And that's why well, I'm I jumping at 14. Go ahead. I, I understand the injury concerns, and I, but I also think the personnel-wise, you know, Waller has to compete with the extra third receiver a lot of times when he's on the playing for the Raiders. While Kittle... I don't know if they're ever going to have three receivers out in the field very often. Um, we don't even know who the third Not receiver is. Like set up right now. Nobody wants to see Mohamed Sanu out there. Yeah, so I mean, when we look at kind of what he's going to be able to do and productive-wise, we kind of have our questions about Debo Samuel, both of us. We kind of think Ayuk's going to be number one. Somebody's going to catch the ball. And unlike the Raiders, you don't have a Jalen Richard in the backfield. You have pretty much unproven pass catchers in the backfield as well. So he's going to get the volume a lot more, I think, and have that consistent volume. But I do understand the injury concerns. Well, look, after, off of 14 games, I still have him getting more targets by the end of the year than any other pass catcher on the San Francisco 49ers. Just to, kind of, just to kind of speak to that as far as the volume goes. Last thing to talk about the 49ers is the running backs. We Yeah, there's confusion as far as, oh, Jeff Wilson, that means Wayne Gallman's number two. Or maybe Wayne Gallman's a candidate to get cut. Look, it's going to be Trey Sermon who's going to be the number two stringer as far as we go into this thing. And the draft strategy on the 49ers backfield doesn't change. You draft the guy who's the lowest ranked because that's the guy who's going to have the most value at the end of the year. doesn't matter who starts. The guy who's going to have the most value is going to be the lowest guy ranked. The lowest guy ranked is going to be Trey Sermon because it's still going to, it's still, and should be Raheem Mostert ahead of him because I do believe Raheem Mostert will be the starter come week one. You want to talk about a guy who has an injury ratio problem, though. It's four to one. I have him missing five games this year, minimum. I think that even might be a little, you know, generous, frankly, on my part, but it comes out to at least expecting him to miss, miss five games this year. He's going to be very effective in those five games. Moser's going to have value. And if you can get him at the right price, just like any player, if you get him at the right price, they're still worth it. But Trey Sermon is going to be the guy that I'm going to target. I'm not necessarily going to target Moser unless he's falling to me, you know, eight, round eight through 10, somewhere in that range. Then I'll start to think about him because in that range, you're going to talk about a guy that while he's on the field, is going to be an electric RB2 who has the potential to win you any given week just because of his God-given ability to be able to break them and have those big games. But I have him for 800 yards. I have him for eight rushing touchdowns, about 40 receptions. So that's a safe thing. But Trey Sermon, I have right there with him. Right there with him. I have him getting more carries by the end of the season. Just over 800 yards, also eight rushing touchdowns. The difference is going to be Trey Sermon is never going to be very involved in the passing game. I I compared him before this, and the more I think about it, the more I think I'm dead on the money. He's Alfred Morris in the Kyle Shanahan system. Remember Alfred Morris and Mike Shanahan system? Very similar. Zero in the passing game, barely ever contributed in that capacity, but they trusted in the goal line. They trusted him first and second down. Very similar type of runner, fits the system well, given his skill set, physical type of body. He projects out to be a guy that I think of the 49 running backs actually has a chance to stay healthy throughout the entire season, and he will get his opportunity when Raheem Mostert inevitably goes down the injury. Now, what happens after that will remain to be seen. You know, Is it a situation where Mostert doesn't get his job back? You're talking about the 49ers, so everyone's going to be involved to some capacity when healthy and on the field. But this is why if I'm targeting a particular 49ers running back, I'm going to be targeting Trey Sermon because you're going to probably be able to get him in double-digit rounds depending on where Raheem Mostert is going. And you know he's going to be very valuable at some point in the year and maybe could be a playoff winner as well. Go ahead. 
Okay, so I look at this very differently in the sense that I'm not targeting any running back really other than Raheem Oster. If Raheem Oster falls into my lap round 12, then I would draft him. Otherwise, I'm not touching this backfield because I have no idea what's going to happen when it comes to Kyle Shanahan. It reminds me of the New England backfield in so many different ways where you have guys who are going to play roles, but we didn't have to figure out the roles yet. Who's going to be the pass catcher? Because as you kind of pointed out, Trey Sermon's not going to be that guy. But Raheem Mostert wasn't allowed to be that guy either. So is it going to be hasty? Is it going they to be They don't throw Jeff the ball to running backs that much either, so I don't know if you necessarily have to have one. Um, is it going to be Wayne Gallman? Wayne Gallman's actually the guy who can do a little bit of everything. It reminds me of Jeff Wilson yeah. Jr. a lot of ways and could be annoying just because he's able to do a little bit of everything. Could it be Eli Mitchell or Jeff Wilson yeah. when he comes back? Yeah, no, I it's mean, fair. That's, that's where I just – I can't I, – I think even when it comes to Eli Mitchell, I think Eli Mitchell's a, a better – fit and more explosive in a lot of ways for the 49ers than Trey Sermon is. Trey Sermon's a good physical guy. Alvin Morris comp is a pretty good one. Um, I look at this guy as they drafted him high, so I think he's going to get a shot. But we've seen even uh, with the Williams kid from you know, the, uh, San Diego a couple of years ago when they targeted him in the third round, and he got he didn't play at all for the 49ers. So Kyle Shanahan having his flavor of the, the week seems to be kind of how it was with running back. You never know who he's going to like, who he wants to have out there who's going to miss a block or miss a key thing and get dog out and put dog house as a result. I want no part of this backfield. Like I said, Raheem Mostert, if he falls into my lap in, in a double digit round, then I'll take him because you're right for four to six games. I got a nice RB two and me borderline RB one guy, especially how the, the season starts off playing the crappy teams with Detroit and stuff. So I, yeah, I'm, I feel like they got a shot that, you know, he's going to have a nice, decent opportunity to be the man in the beginning. But one of the things that stood out a lot to me in the 49ers running games, as good as it is, it's so much better when Raheem Mostert was there than it was without him. For a simple fact, they need that explosiveness. They need that playmaker. And that's where I kind of question, is Trey Sermon going to be the answer? Because because he can't catch the ball, they're going to need somebody to kind of help stretch the field, make it a little bit more explosive, a little bit bigger plays here or there. You can't just get four yards all the time on that offense and running the ball. You're going to need somebody that's actually going to get the six, seven, eight-yard runs or break one. Because we talked about the receiving core, and we're kind of questioning where they're going to get the production from. And I think you're going to need – have some explosive players out there. So that's why I do question, is Sermon going to be the guy overall? I don't argue with the fact that he's going to get a shot to be the man. And if I'm targeting somebody specifically, maybe I take my shot on him. But I just don't really believe anybody's the guy And when it comes to San Francisco 49ers, especially with Kyle Shanahan. No, 100%. But again, hear what I'm saying. We're talking about if these guys fall in the second half of your drafts, there's value here. Because whoever the San Francisco 49ers starting running back is of that week is an RB2. Just trying to figure out who that is, but that's why I'll take my shots with Moser if at the right price. I will take my shot with Trey Sermon because I believe he is and will be already at the right price of where you would want him to begin with anyway. So if you're taking those shots later on, especially at running back, because you want guys who have the chance to be RB2s at some point throughout the season, that's what I'm looking at. But this is classic situation, like you're saying, can't overdraft here. You can't draft a most certain sixth round. Can't draft a Trey Sermon in the eighth round. It's too high. It's going to be too volatile. So it's about the right price here, but there's value to be had if it's at the right price. All right, Chris. The mail's here. And we're going to have to do this rapid fire style because we are running over the clock. But let's say first up, Gagne, Travis Etienne, or Miles Gaskin in a half point PPR league. Go. Miles Gaskin. I mean, right now we talked about we don't know what Etienne's going to be splitting wise. So I definitely go with Miles Gaskin. I think it depends on how you want to look at this, actually. Do you want a running back for the second half of the season, or do you want a guy who's going to help you out in the beginning half? I think it's kind of what you're looking at. 
to me, this is going to be all about ADP. Where, where, where are these guys going? And I'm going to take whichever running back is going later than the other one, frankly, for, for, for me, which as of right now would probably be Travis Etienne. So that's the only reason. I'm, but if it winds up flipping, if Travis Etienne gets boosted up as we get closer to the season and Miles Gaskin falls lower and he's the better value, then I'll switch that and go with Miles Gaskin. But I think it's very close between these two guys. Um, I, I, here's what I will say. I think Travis Etienne has a better chance to play 17 games than Miles Gaskin does too. So that's kind of the other factor that I, I will incorporate into that as well. I'm going uh, with the obvious starter. I can't, I can't blame you with, with that one. Norton, he asks, uh, Swift or Najee Harris in Dynasty League startup? Go. Ooh, this one's more for you. I know where I'm going. I'm going Najee Harris all day, every day. I'm going Najee Harris, too. I'm not, I'm not, not, not crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not crazy. Najee Harris is bell cow back in a situation where they will let him be the bell cow back. Yeah, and he's going to get ball. receptions. To, right. He's going to get receptions because he can catch the ball. He's going to run. He's going to go line. It, it's definitely Najee Harris for me, as much as I love DeAndre Swift. Uh, and even 2021, I think they're going to be very, very close to each other. I may have Harris ranked a little bit ahead of Swift, too. We'll see exactly how that projects out once they get to the Steelers. Next up, Connor, how do you value Michael Thomas this year? This is a great question. Go ahead. Michael Thomas is a receiver one. Don't get it twisted, people. I don't. Maybe this beginning of the season last year kind of confused people, and they thought Michael Thomas fell off the face of the earth. But when Taysom Hill came, became the quarterback and started, Michael Thomas blew back up again. And it was Taysom Hill throwing him the ball. They had eighty kept eighty percent uh, completion percentage to him. Um, the guy, the guy, Michael Thomas is a beast. And I don't care if it's Winston. I don't care if it's Taysom Hill. I don't care who it is. He's clearly the best receiver on on the Saints. And we know historically, Sean Payton always is able to scheme open his number one receiver. I think he's way more talented than Marquise Colston was, and Colston lasted forever I mean, as, a, as basically a number one receiver for them. I see there is no reason to get to be down on Michael Thomas because people seem to be. I just don't get it. Yeah, just because Drew Brees is going to be the quarterback doesn't take away the target share that Michael Thomas is going to have. Traquan Smith is just a guy. I think we can all kind of you know get on board with that finally. Adam Troutman, as much as we like him as a sleeper, and we'll get into that when we talk about the Saints, he's still an unproven second-year tight end, ultimately speaking. This offense, even without Drew Brees, it's still Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara. Even if it's Taysom Hill at the quarterback position, which would be the worst thing in the world for any pass catcher of the Saints, we still saw how he targeted the crap out of Michael Thomas when he was in there anyway. Him going in, his ADP right now, I believe, is 31. Him going in a roughly the third round, is great value. If you can get oh, Michael Thomas good. in the third round, I'm with you. I think he's a top 12 wide receiver. He's the value of the draft for me right now. So that's 100%. Other, other than Thomas. Devontae Adams, can you think of a guy who we know is going to get that many targets? No, maybe exactly. Keenan Allen, maybe. That's maybe. the only other guy I could think of. That would be the only other guy. Those, those are the three guys that have unequivocally top-end target shares on their teams and our studs at the same time. So you're, Michael Thomas, you're going to guys going to have a target share of a Devontae Adams with Keenan Allen in the third round as it stands right now. Jameis Winston, guess what? Wide receivers do really well with Jameis Winston. I don't know why so many people are down on Michael Thomas because Drew Brees retired. It makes absolutely no sense. Last question, Burt, who has a better 2021, J.K. Dobbins or Clyde Edwards-Alaire? Ooh, that's a tough one for me. Ooh, oh, uh, man. Um... I'm probably going to go have to go with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, which is just to be kind of anti-you in a sense. But no, um, I'll go with Hilaire because I do think that he's going to be more involved in the passing game than I think Dobbins will be. I think Dobbins is going to be very effective. He'll have like very much similar you know, production that Mark Ingram had before Dobbins joined the backfield with Mark Ingram. 
Um, but I think overall, Edwards Hilarious is in a, a, a cup, it's awesome situation. The offensive line being revamped the way it has been, and basically the not adding extra extra playmakers on the offense, I think sets up really well for him to have a nice big year. Yeah, the offensive line is very, very interesting. I think the question for me will be, do they actually make a game plan to actually throw the football to Clyde Edwards-Alaire, which I think is a, a huge factor of what he needs to reach his fantasy potential. So I'm going to go J.K. Dobbins because the Ravens already featured the run game, to your point, no Mark Ingram. We saw what J.K. Dobbins was with just Gus Edwards sharing the carries. He was fantastic. And this whole notion of, well, Lamar Jackson steals touchdowns. He had a seven-week run where he had touchdowns every single week once they got rid of the Ingram factor was out of the picture. It was just him and Gus Edwards. If they throw him the ball at all on top of it, it'll be great. But J.K. Dobbins at 15 touches a game, whether they're carries or receptions or whatever, in that offense, I think is actually going to be just an edge better than Clyde Edwards-Hilaire over on Kansas City. I think there's just more touchdown potential there, more explosiveness in the running game. It'll just be more featured in general. But both think, of these guys are guys are going to be in that about second round, solid RB2 with some upside, I think, territory. Yeah, I was just going to say real quick that I think that Dobbins is a guy that I'm actually going to draft higher than I would draft Edwards Hilaire. It's just overall statistically, I think Edwards Hilaire finishes better. But I think you have, you have to have more confidence, kind of to your point, that J.K. Dobbins is going to be productive and you have to kind of bank on him more by taking him earlier. All right, I had two poll questions. The first one being the Michael Thomas one, so it goes back to the, uh, the the Connor question. And I said, over under his ADP of thirty one. Do you who believes that he'll outperform it over under that that thirty first mark? And eighty three percent voted over. So eighty three percent are voting that he is going to do better than what his ADP is right now. Good on MD Nation. Good on the public for recognizing yes, thank you guys. that. I'm a little confused smart. if everyone believes that, though, why his ADP is 31 to begin with, but it, good, it is getting recognized in that sense. Second poll, we could talk about a little bit more. Zach Ertz, will he be fantasy football relevant again this year? Now, again, we don't know what team he's exactly going to be on. I don't believe he's going to be filled out the Eagles. But the voting was actually more even than I've had, I guess, in any of these polls. Yes, was 44%. No, 56%. So pretty close to 50-50, but a little few more people in the side of he will not be fantasy relevant again this year. Where do you fall on that, Chris? He has to get traded for him to be fantasy relevant. I mean, last year he wasn't fantasy relevant at all. I think he was a scrub last year, and he looked slow. He looked like he was done. So unless he goes to a team that features the tight end, like maybe the Colts or somebody like that, I really think Zach Ertz could be finished as a productive you know, fantasy play. Yeah, I'm with you. If he goes to the – this is where I thought it was tricky because I think the team – that he's most likely to wind up with is the Colts. So from that standpoint, my mind was yes, because I do think if he goes to the Colts, he will be fantasy relevant. To your point, though, if he goes anywhere else, I don't know that he will be. Uh, so I'm with you on that. It's going to completely depend Maybe on the, the situation. Chargers. Even then, I think Jared Cook actually might be better than Zach Ertz's at yeah, this point. So, that. uh, that's going to be interesting as well. Thank you, guys. I know we ran a little bit over our time, but we had a lot of information. This Worth is going to be similar to what these... Uh, profile series episodes are going to be. Uh, so we got, we're going to, you know, each episode we'll have four teams that we'll talk about in depth and make sure you guys are getting fully prepared as we get closer and closer to August for the 2021 redraft leagues. Yeah, we're heating up real quick. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Dan Mater. I'm joined here with Chris Dowhower. You can follow us at BellyUpMDFFShow. Make sure you do and have those notifications up on your social media accounts because we're always putting out player news notifications and giving you the fantasy analysis on the fly. So very informative for you guys there. We'll be back again next week from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, WWSRN, options you buy Belly Up Sports. Guys, we'll see you next week. 
It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.